Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Atlantic staff writer Jennifer Sr. thought her mother was an only child, but when she was 12, she learned that her mom did in fact have a younger sister named Adele, who'd been institutionalized when Adele was just a toddler. Senior writes, without any malevolent intent, we'd all colluded in one woman's erasure, and our entire family had been the poorer for it. Senior's new Atlantic cover story is about her efforts to get to know her Aunt Adele and confront the profound effects Adele's absence had on her family. Jennifer Senior's piece is called The Ones We Sent Away. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When Jennifer Sr.'s husband tells her about a viral tweet celebrating a largely nonverbal young man, Sr. thinks again of her elderly aunt Adele, whom she says no one speaks about and who herself barely speaks. Adele was born with microcephaly, and in 1953, just shy of her second birthday, her parents put Adele in an institution. It is remarkable, writes Jennifer Sr. for The Atlantic, how many Americans have relations who were at some point during the past century sequestered from public view, warehoused, disappeared, roughly shorn from the family tree. Are you one of those Americans, listeners? Do you have a relative who was institutionalized at a young age or a family member that for some reason or another you never really got to know? And Sr.'s new September cover story about her is called the ones we sent away. Jennifer, welcome back to Forum. Thanks so much for coming on. I love being on your show. <laughs> well, it. we always appreciate having you on for, for your exceptional stories. And, and this one also just felt deeply emotional and personal. Um, I'm wondering if you can start by telling us about that tweet that made you think about your aunt, why it affected you so much. Well, the weird thing is, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't really even put two and two together. My husband knew exactly what he was doing when he directed me to that tweet. He just sort of casually wandered, you know, into, I think we were in the kitchen and said, have you seen this tweet that's whipping around Twitter? It's very sentimental. It's not Twitter-like at all. And it's gaining all of this traction. And get out a box of tissues because you're going to start to weep. And I looked at it, you know, and I found it instantly. And it's just, 
you know, hundreds. It's the replies, right? I mean, the, the tweet itself was very sweet. It just said, this is Joey. Uh, he's never spoken a word in his life, but he's he turns 25 today. He's taught me more in my life than, you know, I'll ever know, um, than I could ever know. It, it, it was from a British theater director. But it was the replies that really got to me. There was just one photo after another of all of these beautiful kids. Some of them were grown-ups. Some of them, in fact, were quite old, sent in by their siblings, all non-speaking or only minimally verbal. And I swear it took me like 20 minutes or half an hour before I even went, oh, my God. I have someone in my own family who matches this exact description, and I can't send a photo because I don't have any. I don't know anything about her life. Nothing. Yeah. So that started me. And my, and my husband, of course, has been telling me to write about her to get to know her since he and I have known each other. He's been like, why don't you go meet her? And I just have never, I don't know, I had to approach my mom. I knew it was a delicate subject for my mom. There were all sorts of reasons why I didn't do it. Yeah. And your mom told you that you had an aunt or that she had a sister when you were 12 years old. And so what was your understanding of your aunt and what she was capable of? What was my understanding? I mean, I think we all underestimated what she was capable of. My understanding was that she had not only basically no language, but that she had that she was barely sentient. I mean, my understanding was that she w- didn't retain the names of people or faces, including those who were regularly a part of her life, that she never knew who my grandmother was. Though my grandmother visited her with my grandfather every single weekend um, when she was growing up, uh, there when she was put in an institution, as you said, um, I was given to believe that she just wasn't capable of, of flourishing or, you know, of de- deepening in any way. And, of course, that was the point of view in the 1950s. <laughs> but the fact that I had not to reinterrogate it is somewhat shameful, you know. Hmm. Well, you you do write about how remarkable it is how many Americans have relations like Adele who were at some point during the past century sent away and placed in institutions and had that view that once you were at a certain point in your life, that's it. You were never going to grow, change or evolve or even even capable of it. Do you, do you want to say a little bit more about this aspect of U.S. history that you learned was such a norm in terms of understanding? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's chilling, really. Um, I mean, it, it goes back and forth. I mean, you know, during the colonial era, you know, for, for it wasn't always the case, right? Yeah. I mean, people were just sort of swept into their communities um, um, if they were intellectually or physically disabled. But um what started to happen was there came a point that semi-paradoxically kind of coincided with the progressive era. It was earlier, I guess, maybe. But like the thought that like maybe individuals with disabilities could be rehabilitated, could be even cured if they went for the right kinds of therapies or went to the right asylums or the right, you know, institutions. Um, and when it became clear that they could not be, quote, unquote, cured... Um, that moment, 
very unfortunately sort of coincided with the eugenics moment in the United States. And people's fates were really sealed. Um, a certain kind of, I mean, people were very um, bullish on, for, for some, some people even with progressive politics were very bullish on, you know, sort of, Changing, reshaping, um, you know, the, the, I don't you know, our population yeah. for yeah. whatever reason. I mean, sometimes it was just that these children would be a burden. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons, right? Or that this, we would then not have to, you know, we would have a, I mean, I can't give all of the kind of justifications. Some were positively grotesque and others may have had slightly more benevolent, you know, less sinister kind of underlying motives. But the bottom line is that by the 1940s and 50s, I mean, there was real pressure, I think, by my grandparents in 1953. I mean, they were there was immense pressure to warehouse a child like Adele. Yeah. Um, the thought was it would be better for you. It would be better for your, my mother. It would be better for the whole family. She'll only drag you down. She'll never give you any joy, which was crazy because, of course, she had already given them joy. They'd already bonded with her for 19 months. They already loved her yeah. deeply. So it was already bananas to think that she wouldn't provide them any kind of fulfillment. It would just be a different kind of fulfillment. But no one thought that way. And they just thought that there would be nothing gratifying in it. And the best thing for the whole family and the best thing for her, for Adele, would be to be in an institution because that's really the only place that could care for her, that would know how to, you know, handle her. Which And the opposite was true. These places almost uniformly were these gothic palaces of horror. But that was the thought. Yeah. And, you know, my grandparents, what did, they, what did they know? They couldn't argue. They were working class. My grandma didn't have a college education. My grandpa wasn't a fancy guy. You know, he went to a local college on the GI Bill. I mean, he, you know, they weren't going to argue with these experts who are yes. telling them what to do. But then when you do meet Adele for the first time, I think it was in 1998, um, mm -hmm. I mean, you're struck by... She she's singing. She's carrying a tune. She she has incredible needlepoint canvases that she's done all across the wall, and and you're struck by how much joy she's bringing your mother. Right? Can you talk about that time of meeting her for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I was not yet thirty, and I said I really want to meet her. You know, I was twenty eight or whatever I was, and I I and my mother said, let's go. She, you know, and, and we went. And so on the one hand, yes, it was sort of amazing to see my mom plump like a sponge and get very excited and to suddenly play with Adele. You could, I, I wrote this in the story, that you could really discern the outlines of like the six-year-old girl she had been before, you know, who had been playing with her sister before her sister got taken away without any explanation. Um, but... And, as you say, there were needlepoints marching across her walls that she had done. And the amazing, chilling, kooky thing is that my mother was an avid needlepointer in those years mm -hmm. and was taking on these comically ambitious projects like the Chagall windows. I'll do all of them. I'll needlepoint them all. They'll cover our house. I mean, it was just these giant things that took her forever. And my mother was an opera singer, studied opera, very serious musician, um, you know, it could pick up the telephone and tell you 
what the dial tone was, you know, tell you that it was like a major third or whatever. You know, I can't even remember. But like extraordinary. And there is Adele singing on key. And suddenly she has thousands of words at her disposal if she's singing because she has all of the church songs memorized that she's learned every Sunday. Um, she was taken to church. But it, it was an awkward visit in the sense that, like, we were left alone in a room with her and we didn't have any – she really only had, like, two words at her disposal, like yes and no. Yeah. You know, and, and we didn't really know what she liked or how to make conversation or – we sort of – we sort of arrived and we like landed as if we were an asteroid. You know, we just kind of were there suddenly. And yeah. so it didn't exactly work, that visit. It was awkward in its way. Did you feel any anger or resentment at the awkwardness? I mean, in some ways, like, I guess what I mean is, you know, given what your mom and your understanding was in terms of what Adele was capable of, and then you come and you see that there is the capacity for so much more that you're not able to access did you think about that or feel that? I mean, I, I wish I could. T- I, I mean, I, I wasn't aware fully of what she was capable of. You know, I mean, I, 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 I suppose I was struck most by the fact that my mother seemed to have missed out on something. She mm. seemed so much to really still want a sibling that it wasn't anger so much as I think melancholy that overtook me that day. I was so struck by my mother's um, – my mother is such a sort of fortress of strength and control that to see her being kind of goofy and childlike blew my doors off. Yeah. And I think it really saddened me that like – you know, that I saw this. We're talking to Jennifer Sr. about her new cover story for The Atlantic, about her Aunt Adele, who was institutionalized when she was just shy of two years old, and the profound effects that it had on Adele, but also on Sr. and her mother. Sr.'s essay is called The Ones We Sent Away, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Do you have a similar story, a relative who was institutionalized, or a family member that for some reason or other... You never really got to know what impact did it have on you. You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Jennifer Sr. was 12 when she learned she had an aunt named Adele who was sent to an institution after being diagnosed with microcephaly as a toddler. Sr.'s new essay for The Atlantic called The Ones We Sent Away is about her efforts to get to know Adele and the impact that Adele's absence had on her and her mother. And you can join the conversation if you have thoughts or questions for Jennifer Sr. at 866-733-6786, You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels uh, at KQED Forum. Just before the break, we were talking about your mom, and I want to ask you about the impact that it had on your mom. You described your mom as always in control. Um, But when you asked your mom how it felt at six to lose Adele, she described it as saying that it was like I lost an arm or a leg. Can you talk about your mom's confusion that she felt when Adele was taken away? Yeah, I mean, imagine being six and a half and having this, charming, adorable little baby in the house and a playpen in the living room every day. And then one day your parents look at you and say, we're taking Adele to walking school. And she never comes home. I I just can't even imagine how that could possibly be processed by a child. I mean, my mother apparently just went, oh, walking school. Okay. But it's not like a six and a half year old has any sense of what kinds of milestones a toddler is supposed to be hitting, right? So as far as my mother was concerned, there was nothing wrong with her sister. She was perfect. She was just this adorable little child with whom she played games. And so um, I think the sense of bewilderment, which over time morphed into... um, anxiety and then into um, overwhelming sadness and anger and hysteria at some moments where she would break down, you know, when she was eight years old. So a year and a half later, she told me that she became absolutely hysterical and looked at my grandmother and said, when is Adele coming home? How long can it possibly take for somebody to learn how to walk? And my grandparents I mean, they, I loved my grandparents. They were amazing. I knew them very, very well. They lived like 10 minutes from us. And when my mom went to law school when I was like nine, they took care of me and my brother. So like, I really knew them well. And they were the loveliest people. I mean, they had not been coached at all on what to tell their kid, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no, uh, pediatricians weren't conversant in this sort of thing. There were no child therapists floating around, much less occupational therapists and speech therapists and people who are savvy about neurodiversity. There was nothing. So this was some excuse my grandparents cooked up, walking school. And when my mother said, whenever my mother said, when is Adele coming home? They said, they just punted. They said, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine how this misshaped her. Well, her everything. the other... In terms of child's, I mean, your great-grandmother actually told your mother that she had to be almost good enough for two children because one was yeah. lost. I just cannot imagine. That's such an incredibly difficult weight to bear, you know, and what impact do you think that had on your mom? Yeah. So so at 13, my great-grandmother moved. I think it was when my gra- my mother was 13. Yeah, I think my mother was 13. At some point, my great-grandmother 
maybe my mom was younger. I can't remember anymore. I think I wrote it in the story. I knew it once. But anyway, my great-grandmother moved in to my mother's bedroom, which had another single twin, you know, a twin bed, where Adele was supposed to sleep. And then suddenly there's my great-grandmother, newly widowed, um, who doesn't have any of the tact or the delicacy that my grandparents had. It came naturally to them. My grandmother had all of the delicacy of like an anvil. I mean, she was like, I sometimes just imagine like, you know, uh, uh, in those Bugs Bunny cartoons when like a piano is falling out the window and smushes someone. That was my great-grandmother. That is like what she was like. And she just bluntly told my mother one day that everything about Adele, like things my mother didn't know, including, I think, finally bluntly saying, using the words of the day, saying that my aunt, I guess, what did they say in those days? They said that my aunt was profoundly retarded. Those were the words, right? We didn't we didn't say developmentally disabled in those days. Um, and which was, by the way, a step up from what the doctor who initially diagnosed my aunt said. He looked at my grandmother and said that she was an, a microcephalitic idiot. Mm. Um, so, um, which again was a technical term. These were all terms in medical textbooks. So, my great grandmother says this to my mother, and my mother goes on to frantically like be the most high achieving human being in the world. She skips a grade. She sings an all city chorus at Carnegie Hall. She. You know, teaches music theory at Brooklyn College, and you know she—I she, mean, she just be, becomes this like sort of superstar, which maybe she would have done anyway. You know, I mean, I don't have a control mom. We don't have some like alternate universe where we can see. But I mean, the pressure. Yes, I think yes. it was intense. You write it is painful, almost too painful to think about how differently my mother might have felt, or how different her life and my aunts might have been if they had been born today. Um, one of the things that you learn is that Adele was sent to the Willowbrook School. Uh, And can you talk a little bit about why that was so striking to you? If, okay, I am just too young to be exactly in the generational cohort where if you say the word Willowbrook to any New Yorker, they just go, oh, my God. Yeah. But in 1972, Geraldo, of all people, no matter what you think of his politics now, Geraldo did an unambiguous public good by exposing Willowbrook. It was a state institution. It was supposed to be a quote-unquote school for the, again, I think it was called the mentally retarded, the develop, you know, the intellectually um, uh, and. I think only intellectually, not developmentally disabled, um, out in Staten Island. What it was was just a despicable medieval um, – I don't even know how to describe it. I mean it looked like one of those Renaissance depictions of hell. Um, people were – there were like 80 people to a floor with only two attendants. People had 90 seconds to eat. The attendants were just force-feeding them as fast as they could eat. Um and some of them, you know, had digestive issues and they were just like force-feeding them like foie gras geese. I mean, it was horrifying. Um, they got no stimulation. There were no toys. And they were naked. They were wailing. Mm. They were often sitting in their own feces and their own urine for days on end. I mean, it, it took – Robert uh, Kennedy, when he was a senator, I think, visited the place and called it a hellhole. Um, 
And uh, it took Geraldo, though, stormtrooping the place with his cameras and his crew and going in and, you know, they catching them completely unaware um, to shut the place down. It shut down, I think, a few years later. And I know you don't And that's where my aunt spent her formative years. Exactly. I I mean, I I don't. You don't know for sure if these were specifically the conditions you experienced, but because of the timing, right, the time frame, and also yeah. another detail about your aunt and her teeth, you suspect she, she certainly did. Yeah. Well, okay. So her teeth, I'll, I'll tell you that in one second. Uh, yes, something I should probably mention. They gave people um, at Willowbrook hepatitis deliberately just to see, you know, how the human body would react if it went untreated. I mean, doctors were doing government-funded medical experiments on the intellectually disabled back then. It was really terrible. Um, Her teeth. So my aunt has no teeth, right? So, like, we didn't... I was told that it was because she had taken a medication that made her teeth rot, I looked up all the antipsychotic medicines that she could have been given to narcotize her as they did in those days. There's really nothing that would make a person's teeth rot. That that just struck me as kind of fishy. And one day I was talking to Diana McCourt, um, Malachi McCourt's wife. Um, Malachi is this storied New York figure, brother of Frank, owner of a bar, also a memoirist and an actor. Diana's daughter, before she met Malachi, um, also was in Willowbrook and was just casually mentioning to me (laughs) the Willowbrook dentist. I mean, this came up. I didn't bring it up. Nothing. She just happened to mention it. And I said, whoa, 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 what about him? And she said, well, he was notorious for just pulling people's teeth rather than giving anybody dental care. Yeah. So maybe that's how my aunt lost her teeth. They just pulled them. Jennifer Sr. is is writing about our social history of institutionalization. Her piece is the one we sent away about Jennifer learning that she had an aunt when she was 12 and meeting her when she was in her late 20s. Callers, you are welcome to join the conversation. And we have Lizak on the line in San Francisco. Hi, Lizak. Thanks so much for calling. Hi, thank you. I'm a little bit conflicted about sharing this story because it was such a big family secret, but then it maybe shouldn't have been such a big family secret. So that's why I'm encouraged to do this. Uh, My dad had a photo of a sister who he always told us had died. Um, But it turns out that she was alive and she had been writing to him all of these years. One day I saw a letter and I said, Dad, who's this from? And he said, oh, that's from my sister. Like, And I said, the one that died? And he goes, yeah. So that was very shocking. Um, Mm. (laughs) And then um, I was mad at my dad for years. And finally, I found out where my aunt was. And I I went to visit her. And she had just been released after 40 years of being institutionalized into some kind of halfway house. And this was at a time when I believe the Reagan administration did this wholesale release of people once they turned 65. I think by that time she had turned 65. So um, when I spoke to her, she, she let let me believe that she had been institu- she had been tricked into being institutionalized in what might have been a bout of postpartum depression. And then she just was warehoused and stayed there. But she wasn't forgotten because my aunt, and 
another aunt, went and visited her religiously every year. And eventually um, she took care of her when she was released. She took care of her and she kind of came back into the family. And the secret was, um, the secret came out when the aunt who used to visit, the one who was institutionalized, wrote two separate letters to two different people, one of her sister, another to someone else, and put them in the wrong envelopes. So the aunt that was, the letter that was intended for the sister went to this other person. And then that person said, what is this? And that's how the story came out. There's actually a lot more that I don't want to share because No, no, um, but but thank you for for telling us about her and and bringing her to life for us. Uh, Jennifer, you wanted to say something? Yes, definitely. I mean, first of all, yes, there is no shame in giving, in name, in adding flesh and blood and names to these people. They all belong back on our family tree, right? Um, Jennifer Natalia Fink has done this terrific work um, at Georgetown about relineating, she likes to call it, you know, Mm -hmm. all these individuals who are sort of disappeared down family memory holes or, you know, so that, and they really ought to be put back on the tree. I mean, we, we ought to know their names and their stories. And if we don't, I mean, just to assuage your guilt about sharing her story, if you don't, it's like, pro, it's suggesting there's something shameful. There's nothing shameful, right? This is a slightly more complicated story in that your aunt might have been suffering from depression, right? Postpartum depression. And then how people handled depression was barely any more enlightened back then than how they handled um, individuals with disabilities, right? So um, all of these things were taboo when now we have um, so much more social support and so much less stigma surrounding all of this stuff. One thing, Mina, I just wanted to clarify. Um, I really got to know my aunt in the last two years when I was like yeah. 51 and 53, yes. and, you know, through 53. So I went back. You know, that twenty that visit when I was 28 was like a one-off. It took me that long to do it again, just to clarify for your listeners. Anyway, yes, so I, I would say... No guilt, no shame. You know, everyone has a a name and a story. You do share, though, Jennifer, that you did go through sort of a conflicted moment about whether or not to tell all of this about your aunt because (laughs) because of so many reasons, but also in part because you knew she couldn't give her consent to it. Do, Do you want to talk a little bit about what you were grappling with there? Yes. And that is, well, that was, of course, the question. And it it, it had less to do with the fact, I mean, I was sharing her medical information, right? Right. I had her genetically tested. And I am talking about, I mean, if, if I am quoting people in a story, I get their permission, right? And I couldn't get her permission. So there I am writing about her at length, and writing about her history with whatever antipsychotics she's taken and whatever her you know precise genetic diagnosis is, and she's not telling me yes or no. And I went around and around and around on the ethics of this question because it's a bear. Um, and one thing I, a very smart friend of mine, pointed out to me is, look, your aunt can't consent to anything good or bad. And it's true. She can't consent to having a mammogram, right? She couldn't consent to having, um, uh, you know, getting an ice cream cone. She couldn't consent to things that were good for her, right, or that she liked. 
So, and also, she she could very slowly and laboriously and tediously, um, not tediously, it took her a long time, painstakingly, sorry, write, give, write her signature. She had learned how to do that. And she affixed her signature to all kinds of things that she could not understand and didn't know what she was signing. So... Um, at one point, the agency that was taking care of her got very skittish about my, you know, not not the family, but the larger New York State agency got very skittish about my doing this. Um, and they were sort of making noise about how, like, she hasn't given consent. Mm. Um, and I thought, but this is kind of a lie. You have her sign things all the time that she's not aware of. And And then finally, I just came down on the side of this is not shameful. It's not shameful. She is a person with di- – I, I want to write about her. I want to bring her to life. I want to give her dignity. I want to show what kind of ca- – that she's a case study and lost potential, that she could have been so much more that we did not do right by her. And I didn't want to collude in her erasure anymore, as you mm. quoted at the top of the hour. Yes. I didn't want to be a part of that. No, 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 no. We're talking with Jennifer Sr. about bringing her aunt's story to us in her new Atlantic cover story, the September cover story, in the ones we sent away. And you, our listeners, are sharing whether you had relatives or family members that you never really got to know, whether they were institutionalized or for other reasons. By sharing your thoughts on social at KQED Forum, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, by calling 866-733-6786, and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Suzanne writes, in 1942, my grandmother gave birth to fraternal twins, my mother and her brother, who had trisomy 21, known at the time as Down syndrome. What amazes me most when I think about this is that my grandmother, who also had an older son, declared categorically that no one would put her second son into an institution. What strength of character she and my grandfather must have had. When I was eight, both of my grandparents had passed, and my uncle came to live with us. He was profoundly afflicted, but brought such joy to the world, I can't imagine what it would have meant to my mother's family if my grandparents, especially my grandmother, had not stood their ground. So rare for the time, as I understand, but so amazing. Michael tweets, people were not exactly tolerant and understanding in those days. The family would have been stigmatized by having the aunt as part of it. We'll have more of your reflections about our history with institutionalization, about family members that may have been affected, and with your questions for Jennifer Sr. after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jennifer Sr. about her piece for The Atlantic about her aunt who was diagnosed with microcephaly as a toddler and put in an institution. Sr. writes, without any malevolent intent, we'd all colluded in one woman's erasure. And just before the break, Jennifer Sr. says she did not want to collude any more. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org and posting at KQED forum on our social channels. Let me go to Kim and Martinez next. Kim, thanks for calling. You're on. Thank you. And thanks to Jennifer for sharing her story. Um, I have a slightly different perspective. Um, I am now the guardian for my 77-year-old aunt, who's my mother's only sibling, and um, her parents, when they realized the extent of services that she needed and the cost of those services, um, when she was five, um, had her live in a state institution. She's been there her entire life. Um, She has a team of 20 people who know everything about her, including what side of the mouth, you know, you need to give her medicine from. Um, Their primary reason for doing, for institutionalizing my aunt was they knew that there would be expenses that they might not be able to bear and that they felt that the state should take care of its most vulnerable people. Um, Our family was different in that um, our, my aunt was included in, all family holiday gatherings. She came home on weekends. They visited her there. And my grandparents were huge advocates for changing laws and policies um, to support um, disabled people. Um, so I, I honestly, you know, my mom now has dementia and, you know, obviously both of her parents are dead and Um, There's no way financially our family could have continued to care care for Terry this long without the state's help. Yeah, and I'm I'm so glad that 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 was your experience, that it was such a profound support. And uh, Jennifer, in, in many ways, you do talk about when somebody is placed in a situation where there is support, they they thrive just as Adele did. Yes. And I also want to be clear. I don't judge. There are some state institutions. They're rare, but that are there are some that are quite good. Also, money was a huge factor in those days. There is yeah. no way my grandparents had the means to support Adele. It would have eventually become impossible. They both worked. My grandmother worked, I think, in a deli at the time. I mean, they, they, my, my grandfather had a variety of different jobs. I mean, they, they, there was absolutely no way they could have stayed home with her or given her the care she needed. It was true. And so in, this is in some ways the only option for some families, right? And so even with gobs of state support now and interventions and mainstreaming and all these things, you still often have to have one dedicated parent who is willing to kind of give up everything and do a whole lot on behalf of this one, you know, of of somebody who's physically or, or intellectually disabled. I mean, it really depends. So I don't judge it. I, I mean, I want to be very clear about that. Um, in general, people thrive when they are at home, 
that seems to be in general most institutions just aren't all that good they don't know which side of the mouth like to give somebody their medication right and if you live in california by the way california has always been better always had the better care they were at the forefront of taking people out of institutions into having day programs it doesn't surprise me that if this aunt is still in a california institution it's a pretty it's not half bad it's pretty yeah. good it's though it has its good. own histories but yes <laughs> yes i'm sure it does but like compared <laughs> yes. uh, did it did, did a senator ever call one of yours a hellhole you know i mean i don't know maybe maybe there were some that were truly wretched i mean i'll admit that i didn't do a deep dive on all of them. I, I know when Pearl S. Buck went to look, she shopped around for her daughter, Carol, back in the 1920s um, and noticed a big difference from state to state in institutions. And families, I mean, my grandparents visited my aunt every weekend. Um, Arthur Miller never once discussed or saw his own son who had Downs. You know, Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, he had a son with Downs and he told his children that the, I think that the child had died but, and then later told them the truth. But, uh, you know, it just it, it, there's a big range of responses to this yes. within families. Well, Tamara writes, my aunt became deaf at a young age. My grandparents didn't know what to do as they were poor farm owners in Iran. Because they were poor and distant from the city, she was kept with the family. She grew up doing everything her sisters did, cooked and kept the house clean, never married. The family didn't, quote, allow her to because they didn't think she would be capable of being married. In my opinion, she would have made an excellent mother and wife. She was one of my closest aunts. She was fantastic, loving and kind. I tear up thinking that if circumstances were different, she may have been taken away. Thank you for sharing your family's story. And let me go to Barbara in Livermore. Hi, Barbara. Join us. Um, hi. Um, yeah, I wanted to tell a bit about my story. Um, when I was 18, um, I was misdiagnosed at Martinez Contra Costa County Hospital as schizophrenic. I, w- I, was, a co- I was educated to go to college, so I understood what that meant, and I was very terrified. I was sent to Napa State Hospital, and they were on two 14-day court certifications. Um, It was a horrible place where I was forced on these psychotic drugs that I had serious side effects of muscle contortions. And at at the moment it first happened, I didn't know what was going on. My body was going in these muscle contortions. Um, I lived on Q Ward in Napa. Um, There were, I slept in a room with 50 other people and there were no privacy in the room, no privacy at all in the bathroom. Hmm. None. And um, I was, the diagnosis has been proven to be completely wrong. And, um, it was a really traumatic experience, but that wasn't the end of it for me. I continued to go in and out of hospitals with this wrong diagnosis for 15 years. Wow. You know, I go keep ahead, thinking about the circular nature of that, too, if you're being put on antipsychotics that give you these reactions where you're then going to be misread by uh staff at a hospital is, see, she's schizophrenic. I mean, you know, it, I can't even imagine being caught in that vicious loop of misdiagnosis and mistreatment. It's just horrifying. 
Yeah. And I'm actually remembering when you talk about looking at your aunt's medical records and sort of being able to piece together that probably what she was in was a vicious cycle of medication and then being sort of misdiagnosed or um, misunderstood and then treated in a way that only exacerbated the issues that they were giving totally. her the medication uh, for. I, and, you know, it's even worse. I think her therapies, her specific de- – this killed me that the, when she was released from uh, Wasaic Institution, which is another one of these New York institutions that had a terrible reputation, when she was first put into home care, she still during the day went into a residential dayhab programs, they called them, but, you know, these programs from whatever, 8 until 3. And uh, they were – this one that she was in for – almost eight years, was in this converted factory that still had really loud pneumatic machines, these just these honking, screaming industrial environments that that my aunt kept. Every day, this is where she went. And my aunt, when I finally had her genetically tested, she has um, a particular variant of Coffin-Syrus syndrome, which almost certainly meant that she had autism, which I could even see. She had a lot of the stimming behaviors one associates with autism. And often individuals with autism become incredibly um, anxious if they're, you know, if when their senses are overloaded. So if you're in this cacophonous environment all day long, it's going to make you just go out of your head. I mean, you know, she was, uh, and this is what happened to my aunt day in and day out after she got out of these institutions. Yeah. So, I mean, the useless medication that she was on for years is one thing, but I, I keep thinking about the noise, just mm-hmm. the noise she was subjected to. Yeah. Well, let me remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm talking with Jennifer Sr. of The Atlantic and I mean, Kim. I wanted to ask you how your how your relationship with your mom was affected by you sharing these experiences with her, going to see your aunt, seeing her again, you know, in her fifties, in your fifties. And, um, and, and just about how your relationship with her has changed or evolved through all of this. Well, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I feel like I understand um, much more about her. And I understand much Your more mom. about the trauma. Much more about your mom. Yeah, yeah, my mom, the kind of trauma that she suffered, and just not quite grasping the scope of like what this meant, and you know the depth of the wound. I also think um, journalism can be a wonderful excuse to ask a lot of really hard questions, you know, not impertinent questions, but you know, challenging ones that you wouldn't necessarily feel emboldened to ask otherwise, even if it's if it's your own mother. You know, my mother had never really suggested that she wanted to talk about my aunt much. I mean, she certainly didn't bring her up on her own. And um, she went 40 years without seeing her and really only saw her, she saw her in the 90s three times, right? At that point, she was 46. You know, it was right after her father died. And then she, then she saw her once with me. So twice after her father died and once with me. And then didn't stopped again, you know, because it, it thing they just weren't 
as I said, those visits, that visit that we had together was very awkward in the sense that nobody really told us anything about my aunt. So we didn't exactly know how to relate to her, really. So um, this was, so she didn't talk much about my aunt. So this was really an excuse for me to ask a lot of questions and get to know just the contours of her life. I mean, I didn't know that she kept pestering my grandparents to find out when her sister would return. I mean, that was just heartbreaking to hear, you know, or, you know, that my great-grandmother was in the same bed that was intended for her sister. I mean, that's, I, I don't know why I never really put that together. I knew that they shared a room. I don't think I understood that that bed was put in there the second Adele was born and that the occupant wound up being my great-grandmother. You mentioned something at the beginning of the conversation, just a little bit offhand, where you said something about how you felt a little bit of, of shame at not making the effort to get to know your aunt, that sort of your husband yeah. sort of gently was yeah. helping you sort of see that there could be more than the relationship you currently currently had with the aunt, which was just very infrequently seeing her or only seeing her once at that point. Yeah. How do you feel about that now? You said, to hell with shame, I'm going to tell my aunt's story. Crushed. Do you feel shame still for not seeing her more? Oh, I feel shame for not having seen her. I don't feel any shame about the fact of her existence. Which no, is no, no, I not that. Scratching. I just mean... Right, right, right. Yes, I feel total shame about not... And, well, and really? regret more than anything. I mean, I mean, not sh- I mean, shame, no. Look, you know, uh, I don't feel... Sh- I feel a profound, aching regret. I mean, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe it took me all this time. And I didn't, you know, get to know her. I mean, the thing about seeing her in the setting of this amazing family, the Ayalas, their name ought to be on everyone's list, Carmen and Juan Ayala, they are just saints, They is that I, I suddenly saw my aunt in the context of a family with in-jokes and like silly little banter. And, you know, they're both from Puerto Rico. They both um, had like Latin American music, music constantly, you know, running in the background. And uh, they would dance the salsa with her. They had little silly things like they would say, Adele, who's the turkey head? Daddy. Daddy is the turkey head. And Juan would say, yes, I'm the turkey head. You know, they had all these. Juan Juan was sort of the jokester. You know, Juan would um, leave his shirt deliberately untucked or creased in a funny way. And my aunt was so fastidious, just like my mother, um, that my aunt would run over to him and uncrease it or straighten him out. You know, um, all these like little games I could have been playing with her, all the songs I could have been singing with her, you know, the Christmas carols that she knows by heart or, you know, um, and she knows people's, I mean, she learned people's names. Like, what was all of this about her not retaining names and not knowing faces and not knowing who my grandmother was? She must have been very aggressively narcotized because, of course, she knew who people were. You know, she, her new nurse, brand new nurse, a visiting nurse who came to do various things, um, was named Iman, and she called her Batman, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> she like all these things are very playful, you know. Like I, I just, yeah. I mean, what yeah. did I miss out on? Good God! You you do say that after your mom's first visit, one of the reactions that she had is that she was deprived of a sister, and I wonder if make peace is not. I I, I hate saying that, but at the same time, I wonder like. Has she made 
peace with that? Have have you made peace with the profound sense of what you've missed out on? Something I learned from the first story that I did for The Atlantic um, about a family who lost their son on 9-11, I don't know if you make peace with anything like that, you know? This whole sort of notion of making peace with getting closure on, yeah, uh, you know, uh, yeah. you move around, you navigate it, uh, you figure out what to do with all the broken stuff, you know, and, and you live with the broken stuff. And there you are brokenly stumbling through the world, right? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've made peace with it. I, I, I think I – some people um, – I think their regrets live in them. You know, their hearts are cemeteries of regrets, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for so many of us, you're right. Though in the meantime, this notion of relineation, (laughs) of getting Adele back on the family tree, um, how does that feel? Does that feel like a minor act? Awesome. Yes, (laughs) Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that feels righteous and excellent. I mean, and I don't mean righteous like I'm, you know, just teeming over with virtue. It means like finally we, uh, you know, like that's where she belonged, right? I mean, she belonged back on our tree. Um, and so, yes, yes, in that a way, I do feel good. Mm. And um, like that was restorative. Well, Jennifer, thank you for always giving voice through your own experience to those complicated feelings and nuances that we also frequently want to have some way of, you know, tying together in a neat way. And it's just not always possible. Um, and I'm glad you bring up the the piece you did about the man who died on 9-11, um, because we t- spoke to you about that. And this piece comes two years after you, you won that Pulitzer Prize for that, what Mac, what Bobby McIlvain left behind and in that vein um, also gave voice to such complicated nuances. So again, thank you. Always good to have you on. Always good to be here. And thank you for having me on then. You were one of the few. <laughs> <laughs> you were. No one saw it coming. <laughs> thank well, you. It was an amazing conversation. And this piece is amazing. The Ones We Sent Away cover story of The Atlantic by Jennifer Senior. Thank you, Susie Britton. Thank you, listeners. As always, I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.